I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. On today's show, the auction to buy the Telegraph Media Group is officially on, but will it be derailed before a buyer is found? Also on the program, 50 years old and commercial radio is in rude health. If the radars are any indication, we unpack the findings. Plus, what it's really like for freelancers in the TV commissioning slowdown. We speak to one director frustrated by the way they've been treated. All that plus in the media quiz, it's time for the return of the elevator pitch. That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. In the news this week, BBC Director General Tim Davey was grilled at the 1922 committee on Wednesday evening. It's an unusual move to meet the Conservative group who can make or break a Tory Prime Minister. The Sun's Harry Cole saw him leave, saying he looked like he needed a good pint. Uh, Meanwhile, the Beeb has told Deadline that the rebooted British version of Survivor will not be polite or apologetic. The show, which airs on Saturday, will be the first version here since it was on ITV two decades ago. MPA Media's Clive Marshall is to retire after 14 years in the job. Marshall has transitioned the company from a national news agency to a global digital news brand. He plans to spend more time ticking off dozens of Scottish Munro mountains. Now joining me at the London Podcast Studio, so we have two intrepid explorers of the media landscape. First up, it's radio producer and consultant Anne Charles. Hello. Hello. Um, Anne, it's that time of the year again. Yes. Radio TechCon. Exactly. Uh, 27th of November in London. So it specialises in broadcast engineering and technology with a radio and audio focus, but we welcome everybody. Mm. Uh, so if you're interested in the future of where media is going, then it's definitely the place to be. So we've got a bit of a technical behind the scenes on how Eurovision happened. Oh, nice. Um, and also uh, the coronation and a lovely session on how to plan your broadcast network so it doesn't get attacked by um, ransomware and stuff like that. We also have a bursary scheme. So we're really proud of this. And thank you very much to all of our sponsors. Um, but it means that you can apply to come and you can have a free ticket. We'll cover your travel and accommodation if you need it. And you get a year's free membership to the Radio Academy. That's great. And that's available to anyone who's from a background underrepresented in broadcast engineering or if you are facing a financial barrier. So if you're thinking, I'm not sure if TechCon's for me, then please apply. The closing date is the 5th of November and all the information is at radiotechcon.com. Radiotechcon.com. Uh, and alongside Anne, we welcome back journalist, writer and all-round media provocateur. It's James Ball. 
Hi there. Do you accept that as a intro? I, I think that's entirely fair. I am feeling quite provoked this week as well. Uh, why? So I do think it was a bit bloody stupid of Tim Davey to uh, agree to talk to uh, Conservative MPs behind closed doors. Because they say it was organised ages ago and it's just him doing the rounds. I don't care if it was organised ages ago. He is the Director General of the BBC. It is publicly owned. It is a mm. public broadcaster. It needs the faith of all the public. And there are means for it to talk to Parliament. And that's the DCMS committee. There's MPs of all channels there. This is going to look like a Conservative-leading DG who's known to have some connections there with Conservative board members speaking in a closed forum to the party of government. That is not good for the fundamental, even if he did nothing wrong. Is it just bad staff work, though? Should they just offer Labour the same opportunity of him to come and speak to the Labour group? They should go. If we are talking to parliamentarians, we are doing it in the open or at least in a cross-party way. But they do it all the time, I think it was completely silly of it. Don't they do it all the time? They'll they'll go and meet groups of MPs or they'll meet individual MPs, government or not. They send staffers down and public Mm. policy people and that's appropriate. They are going to have to interact with it. But I think the symbolism of your top person doing that, I think it it shows too much regard to the governing party and not enough to the public who, at the moment, polling suggests mm. don't much trust that governing party. I just think it was a really poor lapse of judgment on his part. It isn't the first time it's happened. No, but even so, I think as the atmosphere is more polarised mm. and more polemic and more angry, and as the BBC is having to really work to sort of keep our trust, and I think it deserves our trust, I say this as a fan mm. of the BBC... I think this kind of move is just damn silly. I don't think he was malicious or malign. I mean, it it is essentially, he's done all of this and they're still going to sort of be furious with him. They're Mm. still going to be anti-BBC. And now they've just annoyed all the people who want to stick up for them. So, And would you turn up to an invite to the 1922 committee? I mean, it would depend what the biscuits were being served, <laughs> wouldn't it, really? It's, I mean, so when does it, when has it happened before? Because it's not something that I remember happening. So it happened in the 80s. Oh, OK. Well, that would be why then. Yes. <laughs> OK. So, yeah, uh, this is an unusual move. Yes. Um, and it was controversial in the 80s. It wasn't that everyone went, oh, well, that's fine. Of course this is appropriate. Uh, well, speaking of um, uh, right-wing influence on media, uh, The Telegraph. Uh, We've, it's, we've talked about it a bit on the show uh, already. Um, last Friday, Lloyd's fired up the starting pistol uh, on the sale of the Telegraph with a number of contenders who've come forward. And who is in the running? Who isn't in the running <laughs> is a better thing. So uh, the, the last I saw, we have uh, German publishers of Der Spiegel, um, Axel Springer. I'm sure I'm saying all of these wrong. Uh, DMGT, the Daily Mail group, who also own the Metro. So I guess it'd be an interesting move for them to have a broadsheet as well, but they're having a go. Uh, we've got Will Lewis, who's the former Telegraph editor, who presumably has some idea about how to run it. Uh, National World, who run um, regional newspapers. Paul Marshall, who's invested in um, Unheard and GB News. Uh, There's a Czech investor. Rupert Murdoch, apparently. Uh, Martin Clark, who's ex-Mail Online. And I presume uh, to be announced today that the media podcast, as it's now (laughs) visualised, is also going to look into taking over a print empire. How hard can it be? I mean, it's quite a rogues gallery, Everyone's had their own sort of issues. So literally, as you were reading that out, I was thinking Axel Springer acquired Politico. Uh, a lot of strangeness about what they'd said about covering politics in America that unseated so there, them. There is suspicions that it's very much controlled by one owner who was essentially given it by the widow of its founder, who was called Axel Springer. And he's got some quite strange politics that are, might veer into pro-Trump 
but otherwise huge media empire, although beset with scandal in Germany as well over harassment by its editors, hugely successful, Mm. has invested in its newsrooms, has invested well in Politico, established in the English language, and in the UK is seen as non-partisan, and crucially actually can afford it with regular banking, which most of the rest of these can't. So a lot of them uh, may need some support from the Middle East. And this seems to be the thing. You have to declare a certain amount of where your backing comes from, and very few of the other backers have any money of their own. DMGT could do it with minimal Middle Eastern money, but would hit the biggest competition problems. But it's also it's also their own money now, isn't it? Because the DM, DMGT went private again yes. relatively recently, and they would have to find a billion, well, maybe not quite a billion quid, but they'd have to find... They would have to access yeah. markets, but not nearly so much as the others. The mm. others are essentially, you know, okay, National World has some resources. It's uh, Montgomery, who is... Who everyone hates. Absolutely notorious and unpopular <laughs> in every newsroom. Somewhat popular with investors. He's quite good at bleeding assets dry. I can't imagine many in the Telegraph are hoping he wins, but he's a long shot. The uh, others, you know, well, Will, well, Will well, Lewis is well, a Will talented Lewis, editor. But Will Lewis is up, apparently, final two to edit the Washington Post. Yes, I'm interested in that rumour. As uh, I mean, I've worked at the Washington Post. Uh, as a disclosure, I should say, I write for the Telegraph. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Um, He's, I mean, he's a very talented executive, but he's a strange, he's a strange front man for this. Um, and I think somewhat distrusted still in uh, UK newsrooms after, I mean, his role was much more cleaning up what happened with News of the World mm. and the Sun and phone hacking, but he did have to be management's representative. And so some of that hangs over. But I think the critical problem is almost all of these players beyond DMGT, Axel, News UK is apparently more interested in the spectator, yes. which would be much less likely to set off competition concerns. But there's also rumours, um, which actually have been reported in Private Eye, that there's a bit of a sort of possibility in the works that um, DMGT knows it would have too many newspapers, so could buy the Telegraph and sell the Eye. Within the Eye, again, I write mm. for them, sorry. From what I've heard, there would be a hope, uh, oddly, to some people listening, that they would go to Murdoch rather than to Reach. Yes. Um, because Murdoch tends to keep more money in his newspapers than Reach has been known to. So, Anne, are we looking at some, like, monopoly board swaps? All of this is flagging kind of competition commission alarm bells, especially mm. especially if Daily Mail Group gets it. Although it is a profitable business, isn't it? Which is kind of unusual. It, it is. Um, the Telegraphs. The Telegraphs. I think it did 32 million last year. And its subscription efforts have been pretty good. Yep, and actually, it could probably make more profit. You know, the Barclays were, towards the end of their ownership, quite cash-strapped, and they needed to take the full profit out of the Telegraph to prop up the rest of their businesses and their loans, which stopped working, (laughs) which is why it's up for sale. Should be said, uh, the surviving Barclays brother is also trying to put in a bid for it, isn't he? Well, as we Um, talked about last week, the idea you've bought it once, you're going to buy it again with with new money. I mean, that's like you really do want these papers. It's completely surreal. But um, but But then then buying buying newspapers has never been a sane thing. No, but this one potentially could be. I mean, you'll pay a little more than you should, but given it's actually had chronic underinvestment for the last 10 years of its ownership and is still generating cash, mm. there's a suggestion there's probably quite a good asset here. You know, similarly, the spectator is seen as more of the trophy asset. It's not nearly as valuable, 
But the Spectator generates about uh, a seven-figure profit each year. You know, it, it's a profitable magazine. It's got a good subscriber base. These are actually pretty good assets. These were the sort of crown jewels of the Barclay Empire. Well, there's also an element of right-wing cinematic universe uh, with the GB News uh, founder uh, fancying um, uh, the Telegraph as well, isn't there? Yeah, I guess trying to build up a, a, a smaller but equivalent empire to what Rupert Murdoch has got. You kind of go across platforms and you have the advantage, I, depending on if you're allowed to work together or not, or if you have to keep things separate. But if you want influence across multiple platforms and also having something that's profitable, because mm. I don't think GB, GB News, News is not. not. It, it's, um, <laughs> he, he was essentially, I think, the buyer that's causing the most alarm bells among sort of sensible centre-right mm. types that mm. you talk to. Because people sort of say... This is a man who's had an extensive journey in his short media ownership career. Unheard was supposed to be the sensible centre-right and hired a lot of people who did that, who worked on that. GB News was initially, as envisioned with Andrew Neil, going to be very different from where it is. And it really peddles conspiracy nonsense mm. and all of that. And that in a broadsheet format in papers with the access the Telegraph has... That that seems to worry people and also, I think, worries people who still quite happily and proudly write for The Telegraph. Mm. You know, it might have the odd column that you think is a bit out there, but there's a good newspaper that does serious news there. And I think people are a bit worried about that one. But I think would, he's, Will the retired colonels of Surrey go for it if that happens, though, or will they not be kicking up will a fuss? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this is the thing. I, I mean, the one that always sticks out to me in terms of how much do people notice when what they're reading changes is uh, nearly, uh, actually, it was more than one in six Sun readers when Kelvin McKenzie was the editor thought the paper supported Labour. Yeah, and why should, why should they think about it? You know, it's not it's not yeah. the, the the big the big part of their lives. Um, well, it will keep an eye on the runners runners and writers uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, something that happened yesterday was uh, well, something that was public this morning, uh, but the radio industry found out about yesterday was the latest listening figures. Um, Anne, would you care to go through some headlines with me? Yes, let's uh, do it. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I'm excited. Yes, I would. Uh, <laughs> Bauer's investment in greatest hits uh, definitely continues to pay off, uh, led by Ken Bruce. Mm-hmm. Uh, how's he done? Uh, he has done well. Now, there is a complicated thing that Matt is better at explaining than I am around. It's very hard to compare the results between the BBC Radio 2 and Greatest Hits because they're measured over a different period of time. But broadly speaking, in BBC lost over a million listeners and quite a lot of them have turned up with Ken. Um, and he's increased his listenership compared with the last quarter. But Radio 2 in the same slot. So Vernon Kay still has more listeners than that slot for Greatest Hits. But Greatest Hits has, has built up its its time in, in that area and is doing well and presumably because of the way the measurement goes will continue to build up so radio 2 took the hit in the last quarter and they have they've sort of stable like they haven't got those people back but they haven't lost so I, i'm not more. a big radio person how many people what? are we talking on so, 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 so if, if you so hold on what do you mean i'm not a big radio person because 88 percent of the population currently <laughs> listens to radio which is actually down it's another thing i'm worried about but um so, yeah, so in, you are uh, unusual i listen yeah. i listen okay, of enough. course yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not a monster <laughs> <laughs> well so for so for greatest so, hits they're now up to 6.6 6 million oh, wow. listeners uh, they've done this through acquiring radio stations converting radio stations 
Simpsons and uh, grabbing Ken Bruce. Uh, radio 2 remains the biggest radio station in the country. Uh, and Vernon Kay now does the slot that Ken Bruce used to do, as Anne was saying. And he's, he's got about double the audience of, of Ken Bruce. Um, but the commercial impact for Bauer of becoming pretty much the number one um, commercial station uh, will be very profitable for them. So they've done they've done very well out of Ken. And as Anne says, uh, probably a bit more to go uh, on that too. Because six million for commercial radio is enormous. Yeah, it's it? great. And um, where Bauer leads uh, global, so the second biggest station is Hart. Um, now, of course, it's how you want to look at the figures. So in reach terms, how many people listen, Hart is number one. But the amount of time people spend with the radio station, which is where radio stations make money, greatest hits uh, is larger. So they both claim the number one spot, uh, as you often find. Well, if you're the programme director of any radio station, when Major comes out, your job is the day before is to find out how you are number It's a bit like when people say, oh, I'm number one in Amazon in you know best crime series involving a dog it's like you know we're number one in the in, in the, like this town for people who are over 80 so you I, have to, I was you have actually to briefly yeah. number one in Amazon for cults and satanism which was delightful Amazing. lovely thing to have what else have we noticed uh, so boom radio are doing brilliantly so older audiences are massively underserved and turns out if you actually care about them uh, then they come to you and so they've had uh, 662,000 ish uh, people so they are up 49 9.4% on last year um, and they also their hours are incredible so they're having 11.7 hours which is more than radio 2 or local radio who are probably their local so this is, this is the average hours the that, average hours, the the average hours yeah. that um, people listen to a radio station so obviously the more hours you give it the more loyal you are to that station so boom listeners really love it and why that's good is your times you reach by your average hours gets your total hours and then that's what you're selling to the to the advertising market and I was, I was looking at their total hours uh, for boom and it's bigger than capital fm in london wow i'm really chuffed with them like yeah. good it's a small team and they've done they really you know put their own money and, and experience into it and uh, it's just really nice to see people doing well so it's definitely they spot a gap in the market and then just yeah. executed really well yeah on it didn't yeah they? um what else what else have we got um, so a couple of small bits. So Virgin Radio overall um, are now at 1.5 million. And I remember um, a couple of years ago, they were really excited because they finally crossed the million mark when Chris mm. Evans had, had come over. And I think, so again, I know some people really love to look at the quarter on quarter changes, but actually if you're looking at long-term trends, like that, that's that's good news for them. Um, Times Radio, I'm continually disappointed in how well Times Radio is doing compared with what it should be doing. They've got their lowest um, numbers that they've ever had. Now, to be fair, they've got 498,000, which... Um I, I, would, a full, a few I would be happy yeah. with. Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't turn up our noses. It's at. nearly as big as the media um, pod. Yeah, exactly. Nearly, yeah. yeah, they're right up there. Over the compared with last year, last year there was a lot of political turmoil going on. So your your reason to tune into that station would would be more significant. Um, I think that they have done a lot of work to um, improve the lineup and to create more texture on the station because they've got Fee and Jane now, and like Matt Chorley's show has always done really well. Um, but I do think we're going to talk about social media later i think their social media um and they're attracting new people and the awareness for their target audience is still not good because people who are listening to lbc or radio 4 should be being targeted very heavily for advertising and suggesting to swap over and and it some of it is because of um, they're on D2, which is like it doesn't have as quite as much um, reach for um, DAB listeners as uh, some of the other networks. But I just think there's an awareness problem. And considering how strong the journalism is in the newsroom, the print newsroom, the skills they've got on the radio team and then the completely separate podcast department, mm. it feels like there's just 
some lack of joined up stuff. I think what's interesting about it's a great radio station. It I think, is. I think everyone when you when you talk to them about it and they go, oh, their numbers a bit soft. Like they're they're doing a really good job. They're working really hard. Yes. James, how much do you think it is just the name and the connection? And people are a bit tribal with their newspapers. If they're not a, a reader, do they think, well, actually, maybe Times Radio isn't for me? I, I think that might be it. But my suspicion is that it's more to do with the fact that Talk TV has had all of the exec attention and all the mm-hmm. exec push. And actually, I think is still in a very complicated position. It's hard to do... TV is radio on air. The radio product has arguably suffered a bit. They've yes. been playing around with the lineup, but also they spent so much on evening talent mm. that the day was difficult. And so the Times Radio has just been left to kind of do its own furrow. And again, everyone's been saying not only is it good, it's been getting better. Mm. It's been finding its formats. You know, some of the people who hadn't done radio before are now quite experienced broadcasters. But I wonder whether it's that fact of sort of being a little bit the unloved stepchild. And I wonder, you know, if as rumoured, there's a bit of a walk back and a scaling back of ambitions for talk TV, whether actually that does open up a bit of scope for them to push Times Radio, maybe lean back into audio led for both of them. Um, Because I think the space for both of them, I don't think talk tv or talk radio if they Mm. go back to it is doing quite the same thing as lbc and it's certainly not doing the same thing as times radio so i do wonder if it's just actually they haven't really been giving it a push because you can only do so much at once and you know you can't fault them on the scale of the ambition of what they were trying to do with talk tv even if perhaps they are gonna have to rethink that i mean the challenge of media and is is we would all love this idea of like, if you build it, they will come. Uh, but the world does not work like that anymore, does it? No, well, I suppose nearly half a million people have come to yes, a station yeah. that didn't exist a few sure, years ago. Sure. So they have had some. Um, on your point around uh, TV stuff, I do have some bad and dangerous and wrong statistics that you should not do, but Adam Bowie's not here. So, <laughs> um, so look, so yeah, you, as you pointed out, talk, talk radio slash TV's got more listeners than, than Times. But if you're looking across, because talk and GB News are pretty much um, competitive mm. products to each other. So if you just for viewers, uh, for listeners, GB News, the TV channel also simulcasts its output on yeah. the radio. So if but you can, a TV channel that does radio, yes, yes. sort so, of radio so, that does TV. So the point, the point horrible. here is, if you do very, very bad things by comparing the <laughs> latest Radio Quarter with the August Barb figures, which oh, is a telly, okay. which you should not do because mm. they're calculated differently. But let's go for it. <laughs> uh, so in that case, um, talk radio slash tv talk radio is beating gb news in the audio format it, it has way mm. more way more listeners but gb news is beating talk tv in the tv format so effectively mm. whatever your home format was funnily enough you're better at that yes. than you are when you go and, and simulcast in the other thing so. uh, right we continue to get lots of correspondence from the listeners about the state of the tv industry for freelancers after a year of a commissioning slowdown producers directors and crew are all short of work and this week the film and tv charity opens a survey to see the current state of workers in the sector in our deep dive this week we sent ollie peart to meet one such freelancer anna collins who's worked with bear grills uh, sas and hunted as uh, she's been a producer director and more here's anna so i've always been busy i guess i'm normally away at least 10 months a year working solidly all year often i'll finish a job on a friday and start a new one on monday and that's it i have no break at all really um 
But yeah, this year is is a bit different. This year is the worst year in TV history, in TV production history, bar COVID. Obviously, COVID was terrible. There was hardly any TV made for obvious reasons. But this year, um, it's it's almost as bad. It's to do with massive lack of commissioning. Most of the channels have decided to only commission 20% of their slate this year. So that means 80% of programmes are not being made. Um, the entire industry is made up of freelancers, so that means 80% of people are out of work and have been all year. And that's a knock-on effect from several things post-COVID. So during COVID, as I said, no TV was made at all, really a fraction. I think it was 5% of, of television. So the year following COVID, we made so much TV to make up for the lack of content. We kind of shot ourselves in the foot because now the channels have so much stacked up on the shelves. They don't need to spend money this year making TV because they've got shows that haven't gone out yet. Um, That tied in with um, the ad industry taking a massive dive in revenue. Um, They can't afford um, to advertise on TV like they were. And also with the channels deciding to scrap programs, for example, not bringing back The X Factor. Well, The X Factor brought in a huge audience. So obviously the ad slots for that were prime. advertisers just don't have the confidence that they're going to get the viewing figures on the programs that are going out at the moment to make it worthwhile advertising so yeah chicken and egg i mean short of commissioners turning around and going well we're going to commission a load of programs what what would you like to see happen what do you think needs to happen for you know people like you in the industry um i think it's it's really easy, for example, the head of Channel 4, uh, Ian Katz, made a comment earlier in the year telling freelancers to hold their nerve. Well, it's okay for him to hold his nerve, but you can't hold your nerve if you're self-employed and there is no work and there has been no work for months and months and months. Lots of people haven't worked at all or have worked sporadically since last December. Imagine not earning any money for 10 months, nothing. Like, how, how do you survive? So Ian saying, hold your nerve... Uh, followed by an announcement a few weeks ago saying actually Channel 4 are not going to make any new programmes until 2025. I mean, Channel 4 are a huge employer um, and and now they've got nothing going out. From a personal perspective then, how are you feeling about the coming months, you know, and what are you doing personally to try and, I suppose, mitigate against not having any work come in? Well, I am one of the lucky ones. I have been working... A lot of the year, I've done three primetime shows this year. It has been sporadic um, in terms of length of contract compared with other years. But I mean, I've worked, I've basically been working solidly since February. However, uh, the documentary I'm on at the moment is murder dependent. And uh, (laughs) until there's um, unfortunately a new murder uh, in the area that I'm covering, um, I'm not working. So, you know, I haven't I haven't done anything for a month now and but there may be a murder this afternoon and then I'm busy for the next few weeks. Sure, but that uncertainty's got exactly. to be difficult. And, and do you I mean looking into the, the year ahead, you know, coming up to the end of the year, you, you must there must be some concern. Have you got any Yeah, booked I've got major them? concern. No, I've got nothing booked. I, I this is um you know, sometimes I book a year ahead. I've got nothing booked. And um the thing about the TV industry and being freelance, and I know, you know, you've you've been freelance in the past, is when you're part of a crew, you really feel like part of a team. But when you're at home and there's no work coming in, you feel very alone. Um, I'm on lots of director groups, so I know everybody is feeling the same. And, and like I said, I have been lucky and I have been working, but 
for people that haven't been working for months and months and months or just had sporadic days here and there, it's a really lonely place. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, f- f- the freelance world is never a sure, you know, jobs are never a sure thing. But you get to a point in your career where work does come in. I mean, I've had two or three years in a row where I haven't had to apply for a single job. Although you can never fully relax, you get to a point in your career where, you know, that program's coming up, you'll be on it, you know, you've got that next summer, etc. So to have nothing in the diary and know that no one is commissioning anything is, uh, yeah, quite a frightening feeling. I suppose they would turn around and say, well, you know, we haven't got the money. So They have the money and, uh, you know, there's been an uproar a few times this year where they've had to publish their bonuses. Uh, I think, again, it was Channel 4. You haven't made any TV this year. What's the bonus for? That money should go back into the pool and make make TV. Um, they're very short-sighted. They're thinking about this year. How can they save money this year? But what they're not thinking is the knock-on effect it's going to have this year, next year, the following year. Because people will switch off from terrestrial channels and then it will all be Amazon, Netflix and, and, and you know, ITV will die, Channel 4 will die. And, you know, they're poisoning themselves at the moment. The answer is just commission some programmes. That was Anna Collins speaking to Ollie Pitt. Uh, you can hear the full interview where Anna goes into more detail about the anger in the freelance community and what needs to be addressed. If you are a member of our Patreon, uh, you can find that and hours of more insight uh, over on the Patreon, patreon.com slash media pod. Uh, time for a break. We're back with more media news after this. Hello, media podcast listeners. Did you know there's a new episode of the New Europeans podcast available right now, featuring more from the journalist James Ball on misinformation or disinformation in the Middle East and how the media have got it right and wrong. Plus, Rishi's first year. Is it also his last? That's the New Europeans podcast, The Two Mats, with me, Matt Kelly. And me, Matt Dancona. Find us in your podcast app right now. There's a link in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Hello again, Anne and James are back with me for some stories in brief. Uh, And the Daily Mail's owners have been revealing some of the secrets of their commercial success. This was at an ad upfront event for Mail Metro Media in London. Uh, James, uh, what did you spot? What did they reveal? It's um, essentially they were saying, hey, if we lose third party cookies, which is sort of all the stuff Google uses or Facebook to try and decide what adverts to show you. You know, you've been looking at DFS, you go on the mail, you see a sofa. They're saying, if those go away, it's fine. And they started talking about having 3.1 trillion data points and user journeys and all of this. What they're really saying in, you know, cut away loads of marketing spiel is we know so much about what people do on the mail website that we know enough to profile them without having to know the rest of it. You know, if someone goes on, uh, clicks something in the sidebar and is looking, lingering on the pictures of the dresses and then sees a link to, you know, buy the look and clicks that, female fashion shopper. They're basically going, people spend enough time on our site that we can show good ads and you don't really have to panic and we can target ads well. And I believe them. Um, They probably need to be a little bit careful about talking about all of this 3.1 trillion data points and endless tracking because they should read their newsroom output a bit because their newsroom gets incredibly angry at Google and Facebook doing this. And, you know, it's it's a bit, you know, fish in a barrel to kind of go, guys, what you're really saying is we, we can guess who you are when you look at the mail, which most people will be chill with. The mail is collecting 3.1 trillion data points in its readers. I could turn into a great Daily Mail story. Uh, Anne, how do you feel about the end of third-party cookies? Well, it's not quite the end of third-party cookies. They're changing the way that Google is changing the way it's doing them or dealing with them if you're on the Chrome browser. So this this is all a little bit of an overlap between... Wars between Google, Apple and Facebook in general. And also, I think people like the Mail might be building their own data set to say, well, we've got this so other advertisers can come and use it. So the kind of the use of data, um, that overlap between that and the competition um, authorities saying, actually, we shouldn't be building up so that you can only do online advertising with one or two major major suppliers and then things like GDPR because obviously international companies like Facebook or Meta as as mm. is now um, a lot of those are based in the states and the the American regulations around data privacy and tracking are much more lax than they are in Europe with GDPR or things in Canada like CanSpam mm. so different companies are coming up with different approaches for dealing with this and technology's changed over time so Apple a little while ago had quite a, a blanket sort of thing of trying to stick one up at meta i think um where they said in the latest updates you can now choose you know when you have an app and it says do you want to be do you want to be tracked or not and funny enough most people are like, oh no thank you i'd rather not um but then apple's business isn't really about selling the data in that way so google's changing how it's approaching the data handling because they are still selling advertising and so instead of having a reliance on um tracking on a third-party website so that you as the as the customer get a lot of the data, they will still be doing the adverts in a really targeted way, but you will, as the consumer, will be processing the choices on your on your device. So it will still be very personalised advertising. It's just that the advertiser won't have access to the data about you in the same way, which means that they avoid the um, issue of what's called fingerprinting, which is a bit, for journalists, is a bit like jigsaw identification, but the tech version. So you ac- accidentally, you working out that, oh, it's actually Matt who's mm. looking at the, 
you know, it's, it's just just to add a yeah. tiny dollop of extra of cynicism on top of that. So the the way Google is going to implement it is a bit better for user privacy. It means your data is going to less places. I think one of the things we don't quite realize is you visit a website. It's not that website that sees your sort of data. Some of it goes to hundreds potentially of ad networks. And bits of it could go to thousands of brands, and that's for each click. You know, yeah. we don't quite real. And so that trimming in with Google is good, but the way they're doing it is in a way that will slightly favour their own. Ad- they, they have to open it up in certain ways to other advertisers, yeah. but they give themselves system. a home court advantage. Apple did exactly the same thing with Ask Not to Track. It came just as they launched their own advertising wing. And Apple is now, I think, either the fourth or the fifth biggest advertising company I mean, this, in the world. I mean, some, this is sometimes... Um, this, so it's this, always cynical. But this is sometimes Apple pretends, well, we're really, we really care about security. We really we care about your data. And I think they do, but also we also have a lot of benefits now I mean, because they, you're locked into our ecosystem. Yes, but also in this instance, they have started being an mm. ad platform and an mm. ad agency they are much more respectful of privacy and user data than the industry norm. But, you know, they know how to make money. They're a very profitable business. I had a, had a great conversation this week with um, someone in California, and they were very annoyed that they had to basically start again with their email database because California has much stronger yeah. uh, data protection uh, than the uh, rest of America. Uh, and I was like, yes, we've had this for here quite for quite a while. Yes. We are more used to it. And I, just, I felt oddly proud that, uh, <laughs> that our data, that our GDPRs can actually be pretty good for consumers if, if done correctly. It's yeah. although we, uh, I'm a trustee of the Media Society. Mm. And so we, you know, it's a charity, 50 years old. Harry Evans set it up. We do events. The most recent was um, looking at the ethics and the difficulties of reporting Israel mm. Hamas. All very nice. If you sign up and come to an event, we can't add you to the mailing list. And little things it's like that of going, you know, might you want an email once a month going, here's the next event mm. we're doing. <laughs> Try convincing the platform that they can transfer the emails to the email platform. Yeah. It's, it's completely legitimate interest, but, a, but we can't. But also it's a good example, isn't it? Because back to large, uh, the large media companies, the large digital companies, uh, they've got the scale to do this. Quite a lot of them like new rules because it stops new entrants being able to really play in this space too. Yes. And actually GDPR, a, a lot like PECA actually, which is the email communications regulations and cookie directives, they tend to just create compliance barriers. Mm. And so what, what you see is they make life a lot easier for big business who is then actually not that averse to strengthening or changing them. And you will also see as each new one comes, there's a sort of wave of consultants that will terrify smaller businesses because the laws usually actually have some relatively good carve-outs for little places, but usually that doesn't help because bigger companies that operate their services go cautious or they end up paying tens of thousands to people to be told they're compliant who scared them. You know, well, they don't help. Uh, well, there's no compliance barriers for the media quiz, uh, which <laughs> this week is entitled The Elevator Pitch. As we all know, any new format or storyline is merely a combination of two or more existing media properties. So to put that to the test, I'll give you an elevator pitch for a show that's been announced this week. You just tell me what the show is. Uh, Buzz in with your name if you know the answer. So Anne, you will say... Anne. Anne James, you will say... James. uh, Let's play the elevator pitch. Uh, Right, question number one. Uh, It's Shaun of the Dead meets the Generation Game. Anne. Anne. What is it? 
Generation Z. Yes. Which oh. I presume stands for zombie because it's about grandmas who become zombies and start infecting their grandchildren Infect, or something. Uh, it's where infected elderly uh, attack gangs of teenagers in a satire on the generation gap from Ben Wheatley. Oh. Cool. <laughs> are you are you up for that? Um, I, I mean, you know, it's I want some escapism from television. That just feels like you know British politics. So did did it did he like how does it work then? The grandparents all like emerge from their massive houses, and the children have to defend themselves with avocado toast. Like yes. <laughs> very much. I think. I mean, to be fair, just throwing avocados at pensioners yes. could be a great TV format. Uh, right, uh, one point. And question number two. Uh, it's like Nikki Campbell. In Australia, with some Irish talk show host glamour. That's got to be Graham Norton in some ways. Uh, you need to buzz in. I don't know. That, that's <laughs> close don't to know a your buzz name. in. James, the Graham Norton World Show. Uh, it's, it's You're on the right it's track. Wheel, um, of, Wheel of Fortune, which is the weirdest thing ever, because it's like an American show with an Irish TV host based in the UK, but going to Australia. Yes. Can I cheat and claim that? Because you didn't say you that. You get half a point each. <laughs> well, I, I, was, I was helping you. Uh, this is, so, yes, you're absolutely, I needed the pity. You're absolutely right. This is Whisper's Wheel of Fortune Australia for Network 10 with host Graham Norton. I mean, Graham's amazing, is but that, I don't understand the title? this. <laughs> yeah, it should be. Because if that's the title, that's going to take like a whole half hour TX. Yeah. I think he's a great choice for Wheel of Fortune. Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah. I just don't understand why he's doing Wheel of Fortune Australia. That's the bit I don't... No, great he's a, presenter. He's a great host, but, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, also, it's one of those things that they probably film about 900 episodes over a period of like seven days, don't yeah. they? Yeah. So fly them over, spin yeah. that wheel one million times, times yeah. uh, take home the cash. Go, go to the physio for some RSI from spinning it too yes. much. and then yeah. Yeah, I, I quite miss Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. I could, I'd, I'd be up for some new Wheel of yeah. Fortune. Maybe a repitch yourself. Who knows? <laughs> uh, right, uh, question number three. What if Barry Norman had hosted a podcast with his daughter? Anne. Anne. I know this one. Oh. <laughs> this is the poorly named for search recognition, Real Talk... Yes. Uh, can, is, can I just see if I actually knew, knew it? Is yeah. it the one Jonathan Ross is doing with his daughter? Yes. I actually knew something. Okay. I didn't we should know share that name. one. We should no, share that no. one. Yeah. I mean, um, you've won anyway. Oh, no. <laughs> real talk, yeah, not very searchable. There's probably 900 not, other podcasts called it. Well, once you realise that it's real as in cinema real, then it might be easier to pop up. Uh, but you do have to have that explained. So as a punny name does not work for an audio format um, is my suggestion. But there I, you go. I bet they've got to do real talk with Jonathan Ross very quickly as well. Just for the search. Probably. Uh, I think this is one of the challenges sometimes with talent-led podcasts. And um, big stars often like working with family members. Uh, and I'm sure his daughter is uh, brilliant at it. Um, but is this an idea that suits him rather than suits the audience? Well, they've put in the publicity. They're putting her name first. So whether they're trying to introduce that, that yeah, you know, to a yeah. younger audience. Um, Potentially. Yeah. But I, I mean, I feel that you... At this stage in podcasting, you need an idea that's stronger mm. than uh, two people talk about movies. And also, Jonathan Ross is a great person to talk about, about movies. movies. And yeah. Of sure, course, he's and very I'm qualified. Sure, I'm sure his daughter is too. But yeah, it's not necessarily it's not necessarily got an amazing format, yeah. I imagine. Because, I mean, look, I, I understand you could obviously say that about Commode and Mayo going yep. over to podcast, but they had the show, had the audience, had the format. And the relationship, people have uh, yeah. relationship. Yeah, and they, you know that that all carries over. That's different from saying let's start from scratch. Even with a name who knows about his, he mm. really does know about his movies. It just does seem a little bit 
like it's going to do eight episodes and then they're going to give up. But uh, I, I hope it goes better. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and congratulations. You're, you're the winner of the quiz. Uh, two and a half points uh, for you. you. It's a half a point. Um, <laughs> and as your prize, you get to uh, listen to that podcast and say that we're all wrong and actually it's pretty good and we should, we should all <laughs> With tune pleasure. in. pleasure. Uh, my thanks to Anne Charles, uh, James Ball and Anna Collins. Um, Anne, uh, how can people keep up with uh, what you're doing? I am on annecharles.tv is my website or radiotechcon.com to come to TechCon or I am at Sparky and C on various social media platforms. And James? So you can find me in the New European every week um, or uh, on social media. You can find me on the flaming wreckage of the site formerly known as Twitter <laughs> at JamesRBUK. Uh, thank you both. Thank you. And that's it from us today at the London Podcast Studios. Remember, you can get 25% off your first booking when you use the code MEDIAPOD at thelondonpodcaststudios.com. That's MEDIAPOD at thelondonpodcaststudios.com for 25% off. And please tell your colleagues about us, but only the nice ones. Uh, we can only continue to make this show if we have the great and the good of the media industry listening. But let's keep the assholes out. Uh, send them to podfollow.com slash themediapodcast. And actually, I was having a look at the... Apple podcast reviews from the show they're a bit odd I'm not saying they aren't true or that those people really believed what they said but if you really like the show perhaps you'd like to leave a review just go to Apple Podcasts and pop one in I would love to read what you have to say uh, my name is Matt Deegan the producer was Matt Hill with support from Ollie Pitt it was a Rethink Audio production and I'll see you next week Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.